You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. There are four issues with nursing that we're going to be talking about, which uh, directly impact primary care. So the first one is that chief nursing officers are popping up everywhere, but most have no budget to recruit or to retain, and no true access to the C-suite leadership without a budget. So it's a fluff title with no spend in many cases. It's somebody to talk to when you've worked your 12-hour shift with no pee break, no food break. MDs and DOs have almost a $600 million federal budget, and those funds pay for the 60000 a year residencies and fellowship salaries that give them their 10,000 hours to expertise, which is kind of a joke because they're billed out at 20 to 30 times the 60,000. So they cover their pay in weeks, not months, yet one is still subsidized and nursing is not. So thank you, hospital lobby. Hat tip to the American Hospital Association, but I digress. Back to nurses. They have no such federally subsidized apprenticeship, so no parity in learning on the job. To the rescue, state legislatures. Cali just approved nurse practitioners that will have now parity with MDs after three years of supervision under an MD. So their scope of practice is that basically of an MD or DO with a few minor exceptions. So that's now 28 states that have MD equivalency with nurse practitioners. It was 21 when we interviewed Rebecca Love this time last year and talked about nursing then. And this is a sea change and there's winners and losers that get very mad at this thing that's happening with nursing equivalency. Number one, docs are very pedoed right now. Hey, they sacrificed five to seven years to learn medicine. These nurses didn't take any MCAT. They didn't take no stinking boards. They didn't pass all these equivalency exams. And they've been saying this for decades. And the nursing community looks at this as basically pushing them down to economically benefit from these formerly mid-levels. And now they're basically not mid-levels anymore. The second is students. Suddenly, your path into medicine requires a lot less school debt, and that's a very interesting thing we'll be talking about today. And the third thing is the patient. Will you get the same equivalent care with a nurse as you will with a doctor? Um, one could argue you'll get better care. In some instances, one could argue you'll get worse care. That We're going to talk about that again today. Um, and the last issue is the winners and losers list that I like to bring up is public policy. Is this good for public policy. Boom shakalaka. It solves the doc shortage programs that we have. And so who wins? It's complicated. If the patient loses, and I'm not saying they do, that's not a good thing. But there are lousy residents who become lousy docs, so expect a lousy apprenticeship of nurses too. So today we get a nursing point of view on all of these big questions that have direct equivalency to primary care. I'm going to introduce you today to Dr. Tim Radesdorf. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at the Ohio State University College of Nursing. 
I'm the head of academic entrepreneurship at the Erdos Institute and the chief operating officer for Nurses Everywhere. He's given TED Talks, he's written textbooks, and Tim uses every platform he can to find and empower those on the front lines to change healthcare. He was the very first nurse to hold the chief innovation officer title in academia. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, do you have any comment on what I said? I, I try to be even here, um, but boy, do the doctors get pissed when you guys win another victory in the state. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard to listen to uh, your, your rant there without having my blood pressure raise a little bit um, because, you know, it's not about doctors and it's not about nurses. It's about patients. And uh, that's where we need to be coming at this with a, with a focus level. So I'm most particularly interested in, in the components you talked about last there about patient outcomes. And uh, this doesn't need to be an either or scenario. This can be a both and I think it's time for uh, for healthcare leaders and clinicians across the world to, to swallow our pride and, and really start developing patient-centric care uh, versus patient market share. And that, that's where we need to, to land here is uh, where can we figure out how to deliver a high quality healthcare system that frankly we're not doing right now. And we have the best and brightest talents uh, in the world. So we, we need to come together and develop a solution that, that puts our patients first and uh, improves our, our clinical outcomes. Let me, let me describe to you what I think patient care is going to look like from a nursing perspective in the next 10 years. I think the care team of the future is going to be probably led by nurses. The care plan may be put in place by a doctor, but the nurse will have a lot more direct contact with the patient um, on the day to day. And, and for a lot of different reasons that we can talk about. But I think that the patient, like I've lost 45 pounds in the last two years by walking a whole lot more, getting a lot more vitamin D, which turns out to be a winner for COVID. Um, I'm eating differently because I, my body's changing and I'm hydrating better and I'm sleeping better. So that can all be managed by a nurse. I don't need to go in and see a doctor and run a copay and run a deductible to get better health. I just need to have a care plan that actually I know that I'm doing the right next best thing. Does that sound like a future where everybody wins? It does, absolutely. I mean, we have to move from a sick-based care to health-based care and health and wellness, particularly, I, I know that this is something that people are talking about frequently now, but the, the next crisis that we face is going to be a mental health crisis and we're, we're in the beginning stages of it right now. So, you know, that that's not something that we know that you fix with a script. That's something that you fix with CBT or, or other other metrics as things you fix with what you said about eating right, exercising right, getting enough sleep. And, and these are all things that are going to require a personal touch. And that, that doesn't mean that it has to be a nurse. It can be a physician. It can be a PA. It can be uh, a community health worker. But again, it's, it's all about leveraging uh, the assets that we have. And the greatest asset that we have in the U.S. health system is the nursing population, 4 million strong, making up somewhere between 50 to 60% of healthcare professionals in our country. So we need to better leverage that and we need to give them better autonomy to be able to do so. Let's talk, I wanna talk about the autonomy for sure, but let's talk about the burnout. I learned from Rebecca last year that the, of the hundreds of thousands of nurses that are trained every couple of years, half of them burn out in two years. So we can be adding, it's almost like we're going backwards. We're not even moving forward because of this burnout factor. Um, and so these prized nurses that have five to seven years experience, 
oh my gosh, everybody wants a piece of them, but they can't get them because there's not enough nurses to go around. Um, what, what is being addressed at your university and at your medical center to um, deal with this issue so that they feel like they have a voice and feel like they have you know, some kind of leadership looking out for them? Yeah, Ron, well, we're very fortunate to work at The Ohio State University, where our, the dean of our College of Nursing, Dr. Bernadette Melnick, is also the chief wellness officer for our university. Um, so as we're recording this, literally last week at this time, she was hosting uh, the second biannual uh, Clinician Wellbeing Summit, uh, which focuses on providing clinicians not with resiliency, uh, but with the tools that they need to be able to navigate health systems while also advocating to the health systems that things need to change. You know, being resilient is not the answer to this. That puts the blame on the clinician and the provider. And boy, you know, with all the burden that's already being placed on clinicians right now, whether they be nurses or physicians or whomever, there's no need to shift even more burden onto them and say that this is their fault or they need to develop more skills to be able to navigate this. The system is what's broken. Yeah, praise hallelujah, brother. And I'm not even a Christian, but I, I praise you what you say because resiliency is not the answer. It's like telling the coal miner to be resilient when you don't give them the tools. You're gonna to put a nurse in a front line, you're gonna give her gowns that she has to recycle every three days and, and, and masks she has to recycle every three days and tell her and or him that Hey, dude, um, get it together. It's not um, our fault. It's your fault. I, and resiliency just, I think, is such an overused, it's a ridiculous term. You, you can't expect people put in harm's way to be resilient. You got to expect them to be protected and taken care of. And I don't know how this is going to bounce back at some of the hospitals. I know your hospital is, is probably better at this than most, but some of these hospitals that are still teaching resiliency after they've done what they've done to their, to their frontline staff is... Uh, something it's going to come back and bite them i agree uh, and it's going to be in the ways that you talked about with with clinicians uh, leaving the the profession and uh you know again bringing this back to the patient that's that's where it hurts us the most uh because you know I, i'm an innovation guy and one of the main reasons that i love innovation is because it improves patient outcomes so let me explain that to you though it's not by people developing new technologies and widgets and gadgets. Those are intended, but very inconsequential often because most people don't get to that phase of launching their ideas. But when people engage in interprofessional collaboration and innovation practices, that improves clinician job satisfaction. When we improve clinician job satisfaction, we decrease clinician burnout. And when we decrease clinician burnout, we improve patient outcomes. So getting our, our clinicians involved and engaged and empowering them to be innovative in their practice and to solve the problems instead of saying, hey, be more resilient. It's, hey, come to us with your problems. What are you facing? What do you want us to solve for you? And a lot of times saying back to them, you know, we'll probably be better off if you solve this yourself. So what resources can I give you to solve this problem for our organization instead of taking that burden on as a leader who doesn't understand the problem, giving it to the front lines and allowing them to self-select and self-solve the crises at hand. So the organizations that do that, I think are the organizations that are gonna succeed. Well, and I think there's models out there that have already accomplished what you just said, Tim. I, I, I see, for example, uh, direct primary care funded by employers is a quintuple aim win, meaning the patient wins, let's talk about them first, the doctor wins, they're happier. They're, those are the happiest conventions in America, DPC conventions. Then you have the um, employers are obviously big winners because they think 20 to 
And then you have the, the population health is improving because people are reversing and eliminating the need to go to CER and um, their need for medications, their need for uh, the length of hospital stay shrinks. And the, the fifth aim is cost. The costs go down overall for the system. So doctors, patients, employers, population health, money wins. Everybody's happy. And the other model that seems to be working is we've interviewed ChinMed and others that are full risk value-based care. And when you go full risk, the incentives are in place, again, for everybody to win, as opposed to for one or two or three parties to win. So this, this idea of a business model that can change healthcare, I think, is what's going to be taking hold in the next uh, decade. And, and that's only good for nurses, and it's only good for nursing. I agree. And, you know, some of the things that you, you left out when you talk about the future of nurses and nursing, I've seen nurses becoming much more engaged in their community. Uh, I think in those 28 states that you talked about, you know, you, you're talking about um, independent scope of practice and equivalency for physicians for nurse practitioners. I think we're going to continue to see nurses rise to the top of our scope of practice, and you're going to be able to see retail clinics that are run by nurses. There are going to be things that are uh, that are regulated to allow for nurses to be the front lines of care. And we're going to start seeing RNs, not APRNs, take on a more active role in the, in the health and well-being of our communities. So, so you just raised the blood pressure of every physician listening by saying that. Um, how would you address that, Tim, when they are saying, okay, go get your MCAT and then I'll listen to you? Um, they're, they're very upset about this equivalency because... A, we're not creating enough doctors, so we have to do it with uh, nurses and with um, PAs. But what are nurses doing to get that confidence instead of referring out to another doctor a problem they can't deal with, where they can actually deal with it right hands on themselves? What types of um, 10,000 hours of training are they getting in, other, in your uh, overview of what's going on? I, one, I think it's... Um... With, without taking this too personally, I think it's disrespectful to state that nurses aren't qualified already to do that. We are highly educated individuals and healthcare clinicians, so I, I think that that point is moot. Uh, two, without pointing fingers, I'd, I'd say to all of our clinicians, the system we have right now is not working. That's clear. And if you look at the data of nurse practitioners versus physicians, and I hate the word versus there, because this isn't a versus, again, this is about patients. So if you look at patient outcomes for who they're being cared for, until we get to the tertiary care, nurses and nurse practitioners, the, the data shows that we're providing equal or greater than care than our physician counterparts. And I don't mean that disparagingly. I think our physicians are great. I think our system is set up for, for uh, failure. And I think that it's doing a wonderful job at pinning us against each other instead of figuring out how we can be complementary services to everyone. You know, we had Debbie Shetty on the show, and he's a world-famous cardiac surgeon, and every American can now go to see him in the Caymans, if uh, COVID permitting. But he gave a very interesting take on why nurses and nursing is actually got to be pushed into the home. What they do in India, they simply don't have enough caregivers, so they have to teach the wife or the husband of the person who went through the surgery how to care give as if they were an RN. They teach them wound setting. They teach them hygiene. They teach them uh, nutrition and exercise and rehab. And they basically um, push into the home just a highly specific rehab plan for that cardiac uh, recovery to the spouse, to the loved one. What are your thoughts about that? Is that something that America might see someday? Um, 
I, I think involving the family in the care is, is essential. I, I think a lot would have to change. And uh, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to call one week or a, a one day or whatever training that a caregiver, a home caregiver, someone who's taking care of a, a family member uh, equivalent to RN care. I'm not saying that we need to be territorial about that. Again, this becomes a both and situation. So where can we move our nurses to the top of their practice? Where can we move other individuals who are, who are caring for, uh, for patients to the top of their practice? And where can we rely on our communities to help with the care? I don't think there's a nurse in the world who would, who would argue that having loved ones taking care of their loved ones is a bad thing. I think what we need to make sure of is that, again, it comes down to the outcomes, that we're leveraging our resources appropriately, and we are you know, maintaining a clinician workforce, whether that comes from, from nurses all the way to physicians, that is not getting burnt out and getting eaten up internally by the process, worrying about if they're going to lose their market share instead of worrying about how we're going to care for patients. So doctors and surveys, the last Gallup poll of doctors, 75% would not recommend their children go into medicine because of their, their terrible experience, their coal miner experience. What would you say to your children if they said, Dad, should I get into nursing? I'd say absolutely go for it. But Ron, let me be honest with you. I, I was going to be a physician first. And I had that conversation not with my not with my parents. My parents were not a physician, but my godfather was a physician. He was a world-renowned neurosurgeon. And um, I didn't even heed his advice. I kept pushing through it without uh, identifying all of the red flags and barriers in front of me that being a physician was not the right path for me. But he said to me, you know, in the prime of his career, if I had to do this all over again, I would be a high school chemistry teacher. And uh, I, I was young and naive at the time. I was 21 and, and didn't really take that to heart. Uh, but the older I get and, and having children now, uh, I realize what a gift that was he was giving me. And I wish I could have adhered to that a little bit faster in my life. Uh, eventually, I did, I did heed his advice, but it took me some more scars and lumps before I, I made that decision. But when it comes to my children wanting to be a nurse, it has been an incredibly rewarding experience for me. It's taken me to areas that I, I had never dreamed of. You know, I, I did a direct entry program to be, come into nursing. So I have a, my first nursing degree is a master's degree in nursing. And, you know, even in finishing that, I had no idea that a, a role as a chief innovation officer would ever be a possibility for me. Much like when I was 16 or 17 in, in excelling in, in the math and sciences and STEM in, in high school, uh, did I ever think nursing would be a possibility to me? Because... I went to college prep school and everyone said to me, oh, you're great at those things. You should be a physician. So that's one of the things I'm also very passionate about is getting young men and women uh, who are traditionally getting pushed into professions that have been regarded and heralded in the past that may not be as great for people uh, anymore, uh, opening up doors to other ways to, to care for patients, to care for people in their communities. So we had as a guest, uh, Catherine Teschler. She won the Lady Bird Award. I think that's like the People's Choice Award for nursing. Um, so the people actually elect the nurse that treated them the best, and it's an award. And um, and she's interested in a management career. What would you advise someone like Catherine? You know, she's in her early twenties or mid twenties to do to advance her career as you have in nursing to uh, the heights that you've achieved. Well, the first is to is to do some self assessment and determine what do you want really want to be. Because you know, when when I started this, I thought it would be wonderful for me to to run a health system. That, you know, you mentioned CNOs, and and the more that I, um, the more that I 
worked within health systems, I found that being a CNO was not the right fit for me. But if, you, if you're looking to get into management, you have to dangle your feet in the river opportunity. You need to say yes a lot and you need to say no very selectively. But then the way that our system is set up in, in the country, you also need to find a way into higher education. Now, I'm incredibly biased, um, but I think we have one of the, the best programs to prepare uh, healthcare leaders in the world. It's our Masters of Healthcare Innovation Program at Ohio State. And uh, this is all focused on innovation leadership and changing systems, because the leaders of tomorrow are not the leaders that we trained 10 years ago. The leaders who are going to get us through this crisis are the leaders that we're where we are training right now. They're going to be the people who are at the front lines who are going to take their lumps. They're going to take notes and they're going to realize what worked well and what didn't. And if you can find a way to couple that with the right, uh, the right credentials, then I think those are the people who are very quickly will rise to the top of leadership in the next five to 10 years. Because the other beautiful thing that's happening right now too, and is that we are entering a phase where we had so many pioneers in healthcare IT um, that have led their organizations to new heights and are now moving on to uh, either retirement or other uh, frontiers. But there's a ton of chief information officers and, and chief innovation officers and uh, directors of technology at organizations that are, are transitioning out and a new generation is coming into those roles. And I'm incredibly excited to see what this young talent uh, pool is going to do for healthcare moving forward. Um, you chose when you wrote a textbook that was uh, number one when it came out um, to talk about innovation leadership. And you've also chosen your TED Talks to address innovation leadership. Can you talk about what is innovation leadership in a kind of a common sense language so we would understand it, not too academic, please. Absolutely. Uh, so the, the easiest way I think to think of innovation is as um, the process of implementing new value. So uh, if, you, if you can create something for your organization or your system that, that defines or brings in a new value that was previously unrealized, then that's where innovation occurs. There's a novelness and novelty to this of, of what people think, okay, if, if it's been done before, then it can't be innovation. Personally, I disagree with that uh, because I think almost everything in the world has been done before. So uh, what you have to do is, is within your system, be not a change agent. You don't move from A to B, you move to A to B with value and that's innovation. Or move from A to Z and skip B in the middle men and just go right to the end result you want. You know, but that this may sound weird coming from a, a chief innovation officer, but that is incredibly hard. What you're talking about is disruptive innovation and moving from one component to the next. And it's very hard to do in general, but in healthcare, which is a behavior-based uh, environment, in, in, disruptive innovation is, is incredibly, incredibly challenging. I won't say impossible because we're seeing a bunch of things now that COVID has hit that I would say were disruptive um, and impossible or nearly impossible in the past occurring quickly. But things that you know other people are saying are amazing right now, like telehealth, which has been around Ron, for, for what, 10 years? We're finally opening up the doors to things that were very incremental, they're very obvious. And that's what healthcare tends to do as we innovate or bring in new systems. We just follow the incremental innovation pathway. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but because there's so much behavior change that needs to occur, uh, it, healthcare is really challenging to, to do a disruptive uh, do disruptive innovation within. Well, I invite you to subscribe to my show because you'll meet all the people that are doing exactly that on my show. That's who we find as guests. Um, I probably have 25 shows out of the last 100 that we've done that feature people exactly like that, that are just 
sidestepping the system and doing something completely uh, abnormal, innervating, scary, and and it works because people are so sped up. Um, well, Tim, this has been great. I, I got to tell you, I, at least once a year, I got to have somebody of your or Rebecca's caliber because, um, and it's too bad we're not video because y'all are so good looking and I'm so not. That's why we choose not to. But it would be such a, um, a, a good move for us to talk once a year about nursing at least and all the innovation and change because, again, 21 states a year ago, 28 states. I suspect if I talk to you or Rebecca a year from now, we're going to be talking about a lot more states, don't you think? I agree. I mean, there, there, have been, there have been regulations put in place during COVID that are allowing even, even more states to do it. Um, and, you know, there's been pushback from uh, the American Medical Association trying to make sure that those are dispelled once the pandemic uh, leaves. Uh, but, you know, the argument here is if it's, if it's good for our patients now, it's going to be good for our patients always. So let's continue focusing on what's great for our patients, not worry so much about what's great for our egos, and uh, make sure that the United States continues to move upward in patient outcomes instead of continuing to fall backwards, which we've done relatively consistently for the last number of years. Great way to close the show. Tell, tell us, Tim, how to reach you if we're trying to find Tim Raderstorff. Yeah, I'm a big user of LinkedIn. So find me on LinkedIn at Tim Raderstorff. Uh, there's only one out there. Uh, the blessings of a, of a strong misspelled German last name. <laughs> and if you could uh, fly a banner over America with any message, what would that be? Be kind. You know, that is such a good message. It actually fits the banner and it's not talked about enough. We, are, we have been so unkind to each other in the last, I don't know if it's the last year or if it's just a long-term trend, but um, great message. Thank you. Tim, we'll bring you back and get an update. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ron. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.